So destruction happens in many different forms. For example, a couple of months ago in Great Britain, a British motorist bought a McLaren 650S model uh, for $310,000. And this McLaren 650S has a 641 horsepower engine. It goes from zero to 60 in less than three seconds. That's called the Batmobile. So this man bought it for $310,000 with great joy, drove it off the lot, and eight minutes later, crashed it into a tree. He walked away, but he totaled his car in less than eight minutes. Destruction. But today I want to talk to you about a destruction that is much more horrific than losing a car that costs $310,000. And it's out of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 to 16, where Peter writes this, the Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count, count, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So here we are, Asia Minor, early church, right before the general persecution fell upon the church. And Peter talks about the false teachers that came in among them, and they secretly introduced destructive heresies based upon a sensual approach to life. And because of their destructive heresies that they secretly introduced, Peter says that many in the church would be led astray, and because of their living, they would blaspheme the name of Jesus. And two things these false teachers said was, number one, where is this God you talk about? Life goes on and on. History goes on and on. Where is this God? We don't see him. Where is his acting among us? Number two, they said, in this judgment you talk about, this judgment surely will not happen. And Peter thunders forth, there will be a judgment and there is a God. And now we're introduced in this passage another weapon from their arsenal. And as you construct the argument, as you look at it, most Bible scholars, Bible teachers come up with this scenario. They were trying to drive a wedge between what Peter's saying and what they purport that the Apostle Paul says. They're saying something like this. Well, the Apostle Paul teaches salvation happens without any efforts or obedience on our part. Merely you have faith in this Christ. Therefore, you're free to live the way you want to live. So when, when Peter says, for example, in chapter 2, verse 13 and 14 and following, he says that, that they, the false teachers, are, are blots and blemishes reveling in their deception while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery and they are insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls, and they have hearts trained in greed. When he says, verse 17, they are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved, judgment. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions. 
of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise you freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. And so when Peter speaks out against them, they would say, you know, Peter's speaking from the aftermath of a mind that had been captivated by the rules-keeping of Judaism. The Apostle Paul is the one we hang our hat on. The Apostle Paul says, it's by faith alone. Therefore, we say, it's by faith alone. Don't worry about obedience. Come and join the party. Peter had dealt with this in his first letter in chapter 4. He says this, you should no longer live the time of your flesh for human passions, but for the will of God. The time is past for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter says that they, they are flabbergasted. They are unhinged when you don't jump with them in the same flood of sensuality and debauchery and drunkenness. They don't, they don't get it. And so these false teachers came along and said they, had, they, they were sensuous and they tried to drive a wedge between Peter what he's saying and what they purport that Paul says is just living by faith alone and you don't worry about obedience. Now, this teaching became known as something we call as antinomianism. And there's a monk called named Martin Luther who came up with this term. But it's a teaching that went throughout church history and is still going on. And the teaching is this. Basically, you're saved by faith, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Therefore, you live the way you want. That's not what the Bible teaches. See, faith is the root, but fruits are the evidences of a true and lively faith. So there's a little diagram in your worship guide, and it looks something like this. It says that, that there are two extremes. I want to talk about one extreme just to mention it. There are, there, there are the legalists, and the legalists say, yes, you're saved by faith, but really to make it operative in your life, you've got to do X, Y, and Z. And Paul thunders against that mindset in the book of Galatians. He says that if, if someone comes to you and says you've got to do this to add to your salvation, may they be cursed to hell. These people in Galatians say, it's time to find to believe in Jesus, but you've got to be circumcised. And Paul says, no, a thousand times no. That's, that's the legality. And so the problem with legalism is that it minimizes or covers the glory of the cross. You're saved by grace alone through faith alone. The other extreme are the antinomians. The antinomians, again, said, if you're saved by faith, then live the way you want to, which misrepresents the cross. They said, I, I, if, if I'm saved by faith, then I can live with no concern for obedience in my life. If I were to write a blog to be read by everybody in Christendom, one of the two or three blogs I would write would be the antinomian captivity of the evangelical church in America. There are large segments of the evangelical church that, that teach something like this, and it's becoming more popular, and it's an error. It's a twisting of the Scripture, and it leads to destruction because the only way we know that someone is truly in the Lord is if they have a life that says, 
I want to be pleasing to the Lord in my failings, in my fits, in my starts. I repent when I sin, and I run to the cross. I want to be honoring unto the Lord. So this is going to be really a sermon of exhortation. I'm just going to lay some verses out and talk about them as we deal with this issue. And we're just going to walk through these. Romans chapter 6, I'm going to start. Romans chapter 6, Paul is writing about this issue, and he says in verse 1, what shall we say? Are, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? As some people were saying. He says, by no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? So some people run around saying, you know, live the way you want to. It's party time. Do whatever you want to. And Paul says, No. And then he says this in verse 15, what then are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin, have become obedient from the heart. He says you're going to be slaves of somebody. You're going to be a slave of sin, which leads to death, or of right living, which leads to hope and fulfillment and dancing and singing and joy. Ephesians chapter 2, well-known passage, verses 8 through 10, For by grace are you saved through faith, and it's nothing you've done. It's the free gift of God, not of works, so that no man can ever boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Saved by grace. But grace shows its reality by life that wants to be obedient. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him? It's just, he's talking about a mere statement of faith. I have faith, big deal. James says, can that faith really save him? And then he says later, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works. In other words, Abraham walked in a life of obedience after he professed faith in Christ and saw the covenant in his life. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds... You have been healed. I love that. Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we've been healed. In other words, Christ did not die on the cross for my sins so that I could grow to be a bitter, unforgiving old man. He died to make me a new person. Christ didn't die on the cross so that I could be uncaring. He died on the cross to make me a man who cared for people around me. For by his wounds, I have been healed and I'm continually healed. He came to make me a new person. So you see, the Westminster Confession of Faith says this. It's a beautiful statement. It says the good works are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And then the writers of the confession give us six reasons for good works. Number one. 
Good works manifest my thankfulness as a believer. Today's Father's Day. If you're, if you're a child, your parents are still alive, listen, the, the way you honor your mom and your dad is to be obedient, to obey them in all things lawful. The way we honor our Heavenly Father, our redeeming Savior, our anointing Holy Spirit is to be obedient. Jesus says, I give you my commandments, I disclose myself to you as you walk in obedience. You walk as obedient people. Number two, good works strengthen my assurance. You want to lay down at night and say, I belong to the Lord, I am His, He saved me, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Then, Then understand that a desire for obedience is a fruit of your faith in Christ. Number three, it edifies my brothers, it builds them up. I am built up and strengthened as I observe the lives of men and women who serve and care and love and walk in humility and brokenness and care for people and, and, and rejoice in the goodness of God. That just thrills me. It builds me up. It edifies me. See, good works done in obedience to the glory of the cross edifies my brothers. Fourthly, it adorns the gospel. It makes the gospel attractive. You want to beautify the gospel? Then walk in obedience. You want to beautify the gospel, then walk in brokenness and humility and kindness. Fifthly, it stops the mouths of the adversaries. First Peter says, live such good lives among the people that when they throw mud at you, it doesn't stick to them. It splatters back on them. That's a loose translation. And they'll glorify God on the day he visits us. You live a life that's honoring unto the Lord, and it preaches. And this says, number six, it glorifies God whose workmanship they are. It is incredibly honoring unto the Lord. That's why one of the themes of 2 Peter is in chapter 1, verse 10, make your calling and your election sure. Don't listen to the false teachers. Don't fall into antinomianism. And see, this, this thinking has been part of the fabric of the church forever. In the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians was a messed up church. Party spirits, loose living, uncaring. And yet, the most horrendous thing in the church is dealt with in chapter 5. They were suing each other. And really, in the early, in the early church era, to call somebody, uh, um, to say they're, uh, they're participating in being Corinthianized, was a horrific term of immorality. So he's being Corinthianized. But this is what's happening. I'm just going to read, make some comments. 1 Corinthians 5. While I was writing this letter to the church, he says, It is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, non-believers. For a man has his father's wife. We believe a man was living with his stepmama, an open adultery. And the young man was a professing Christian. Paul says, and you are arrogant. You're arrogant. You're, you're saying, isn't it grace we live? Great, we live under grace. We knew what we want to do. It's no big deal. And Paul says, ought you rather to mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. Then he says this. It's a powerful statement. For those, as, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit, 
And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with you, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. See, when the church is gathered in worship or gathered as a community, there is power there. There is the anointing of the Holy Spirit there. And Paul says, when you're gathered together and you're praying and you're worshiping, I want you to understand that you are to deliver this man over to Satan so that his flesh may be destroyed or dealt with, but his soul saved for the day of redemption, that he would repent. He'd get back on the right road. And then he says this, your boasting is not good. You're boasting your arrogance. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And Paul says... You're antinomians. You're arrogant. Instead of dealing with this issue and mourning over it and realizing that, that, that evil spreads with a pernicious, ongoing tidal wave, instead of dealing with that, you, you boast and you're arrogant and you're uncaring. So he said, I, I plead with you to walk in sincerity and truth. That's the early church. And, and so it, it's, it's there. Now, as, as we Think about these issues. I think the first thing we have to continually come back to is that God is gloriously good and he loves us. And he wants our welfare and our joy and our, our laughter. There, there's a confession called the Confession, the Belgian Confession of Faith. It's written by primarily by a man named Guy Debris. And Guy Debris was wrote this in 1561. He was martyred for his faith. He was French. Dutch guy in 1567, and this confession was ratified and dealt with and rewritten, but largely in part kept intact and was distributed to the churches by the Synod of Jordan, 16 and 18, so some 50-some years after debris, seven years after he died. But, but he starts off the confession of faith, Article 1, I love this, Article 1 about the character of God. And Debris said, we all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is one only simple and spiritual being which we call the triune God. And that he is eternal, incomprehensible, can never be fully known, immutable, unchanging, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all that is good. I love that. As I come to the Lord and I walk in obedience, I say, God, I want to walk in obedience because you are the overflowing fountain of all that is good. And, and Debris wrote this to a man named Philip II, who was the king of Spain, France, Portugal. He was married to a woman named, we call her Mary I or Bloody Mary, the Queen of England, for, for five years. She martyred many of the reformers. And when she died of, we think, flu or in, in conjunction with cancer as a young lady, Philip wrote a letter to a friend about the death of his wife, and this is what he said, I, I feel a reasonable regret for the death of my wife, close quote. He was a real lover. Uh, he was a pretty, pretty tough guy, but Debris 
wrote a letter to Philip as he attests his confession of faith. And this is what Debris said. He says, Dear King, we declare that we are ready to obey the government in all lawful things. But we also declare that we will offer our backs to stripes, our tongues to knives, our mouths to gags, and our whole bodies to fire, rather than deny the truth expressed in this confession of faith. He says, great, great king, we, we are willing to be obedient subjects in all things lawful. But we will give our backs to stripes and our tongues to knives and our mouths to gags and our whole bodies to fire rather than to deny the reality of the gospel of Jesus. Let me just give you a historical side note. So this is... So Philip hated the gospel. He hated the Reformation. And so in 1588, 30 years after the death of his wife, there's a woman on the throne named Queen Elizabeth who was queen from 1558 to 1603. And he amassed what they called the Invincible Armada or the Spanish Armada. And it was made up of 126 ships and they were huge galleons and they, they were 30,000 men and all types. They were, they were going to England to level England, to kill the Reformation in England and to behead Elizabeth I. And England had just a motley army. They had a small navy. And so Elizabeth reviewed her troops, 5,000 troops. And they all thought they were going to the death because they sighted this huge armada coming in. And Elizabeth said, I may be a queen and a woman who's weak and feeble of body, but I have the heart of a man and the heart of a lion. That's great. That's a great line. And so they, they go to battle, and they had these small ships, and they're able to, to go with speed. And there's a, a great wind that keeps the Spanish Armada from coming up the river to attack London. And it blows them out to sea, and these little ships led by a guy named Francis Drake and the Sea Dogs torment them, sink many of them. They get in the storm. They lose 65% of the great invincible Spanish Armada and three-quarters of the men, and they limp home defeated. And the Reformation is saved in England, and England becomes a missionary sending agency for decades and generations and generations and generations to come. Now, I say that because God is God, and when you think it's dark, look up because he's sovereign. But, 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 but these people made a stand, and they gloried in the goodness of God. You know, and the, the royalty of that time, they were all interrelated. It's like going to a county fair where I grew up. Everybody's related to each other, you know? And, and so they're, they're, just, they're, just, they're just there. But God has a purpose for his church. And, and as Debris said, he's overflowing with happiness. Let me just read a couple of things here. This is from something called the Epistle of Barnabas, written to the, in, the, uh, in the early church days. And it says this. It says, understand, therefore, children of joy... That the good Lord revealed everything to us beforehand in order that we might know to whom we ought to give thanks and praise all things. Now, children of joy. Why didn't he say children of God or Christ's followers? Because joy is, is endemic to who we are in following the Lord. Because, because to be yoked under the, the banner of Jesus is joy. There's a group called the Cappadocian Fathers. Two guys named Gregory and Basil. And, and they were stalwarts for the Orthodox nature of the church. They lived in the 300s. And, and Gregory Nice of Nice said, 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 God's happiness is that unsullied life, the unchanging good, the indescribable beauty, essential 
grace and wisdom and power, true light, the font of all goodness, perpetual delight and eternal joy. That is God. I thought, you know, when I, when I pray to the living God, who is glorious, I, I, I don't say great one of indescribable beauty, but I should. Or great God of perpetual delight in the throne room of the Trinity. But I should. Great God of eternal joy. But I should. Because there's joy in knowing the Lord and doing his will. Or Anselm, who died in 1109, said this. There is one nature supreme among all existing things. Who is the living God? Who alone is self-sufficient in his eternal happiness. Close quote. I, I just say... As I walk in obedience and as I live in this culture and as we walk with each other, we need to say there is joy in the Lord. And there is a sense of overflowing glory and goodness that comes from God. And yet, we have to speak against the antinomian captivity of the church. So it brings me to this. Last Sunday, I was leaving the church, and a wonderful young man grabbed me and said, have you heard what happened in Orlando? I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, there's been a horrific shooting in Orlando. I went to the, straight to the web and started reading, and my heart broke. And I saw where a, a, a purported gay nightclub had been targeted, and we've, you've all read about it and heard about it, and it is a horrific situation. And so we, we grieve the horror of this situation. And we, two things. Number one, we affirm that all men and women and boys and girls are image bearers. They're made in the image of God. And all men and women are worthy of respect and Christian love. In spite of their ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, demographic, educational level, whatever. All people are made in the image of God. And so when, when, when a group is senselessly persecuted or murdered or sold into slavery or sold into sex trafficking, it diminishes the glory of God in us. So we speak for those who cannot protect themselves. The, the second thing is, is, that, is that we celebrate the accomplishment of many men and women with whom we disagree on the different areas. That there, there are many women in the LGBT community who are creative and gracious and caring and artistic and write music and do heroic deeds for our culture that advance the common good of those around us, and we celebrate that. At the same time, we stand under the authority of the Bible. Let me just read something to you. As Paul is writing to this church in Corinth that is filled with different types of people, just like the church today is, he says this. Do you not know, chapter 6, verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And you just think, you see, we went to worship in the church at Corinth. You had people around you who were former swindlers of old ladies and their widows. You had people that had been greedy. You had drunkards. You had people involved in all varieties of sexual immorality. You had idolaters who had been saved by the grace of Christ and were worshiping the Lord. And it's true here. It's true here. There are many people here from various backgrounds that are unbelievable, but God in His grace has saved their lives. 
So the, the Bible says that if we continue in sin without repentance and without turning and going his way, then we don't belong to him. Now, we all stumble and fall, but we get up and we press forward. But if we, if we stumble and fall and we go back and we don't look to the cross, it's a sign that we may not probably belong to him. And so it's our responsibility to say to people who are involved in ongoing unrepentant sin, behold the glory of Jesus. So I, I made these notes four weeks ago before I knew this was going to happen. And there was a, there have been several well-known Christian musicians who have come out um, and said they are now, they believe they're, they're homosexuals and they're going to practice that lifestyle. And let me just read what one man says. This is, if you've ever studied this movement, there's a guy named Troy Perry who started the Metropolitan Community Church. And this sounds eerily just like Troy Perry, who left his wife and two children to become this, this lifestyle. And this man's done the same thing, left his wife and two children. And he says this, I can't change how I am. This statement goes, to him the most loving thing to do is to leave his spouse and children and to leave his life as a gay man. He goes on to say, quote, I know I have a long way to go. But if this honesty with myself about who I am and who I was made by God to be doesn't constitute as the peace that passes all understanding, Philippians 4, then I don't know what does, close quote. Let me just say this. That's antinomianism. That's antinomianism. See, it's all about I've got to be true to myself. I've got to accept who I am. I've got to live with the passions that are in my being because that's who I am. See, part of the Christian faith is denying passions that don't honor the Lord. Let me give you a couple of examples. You may say, well, this is out, that's outlandish, but it's just in the catalog of 1 Corinthians 6. It says that, that men and women who are sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of, of God. So, so last night I went to a wedding, a wonderful wedding, a wonderful young couple, was sweet and married in the Lord. And I've been married 36 years this week, happily married, like I said, a couple weeks ago, 97% of the time, which is really high. And uh, uh, I delight in my wonderful bride. I have talked to many, many, many men through the years, many men. And done a lot of weddings. And I've yet to hear a man say to me this. When I stood before God and a group of witnesses and I'm married in the Lord. And I looked at one woman and I said, I pledge to stand beside you in joy and sorrow and sickness and health in plenty and in want, forsaking all others. I will cling only unto you, so help me God. At that, at that moment... An angel came down with dust and sprinkled on my head. And from that moment forward, I have never, ever thought about another woman the rest of my life. I've never met that guy. If you are that guy, please see me after the worship service. Because I want you to lay hands on me and pray for me. And there are going to be hundreds of other guys who are standing in line behind me. Now, what happens is when you get married... You say, I'm going to forsake all others. I'm going to cling only to you. So I'm going to have eyes only for my bride. I'm going to labor to be faithful unto her. I'm going to flee from sin. I'm not going to be in an entangled relationship with a woman who may be meeting my emotional needs that leads to physical adultery. I'm not going to go there out of reverence for the resurrected reigning Christ under whose authority I walk and to honor my bride. I'm not going to do it. 
I'm going to say no to my passions, my itches, my inclinations. I'm not going to say, well, you know, maybe if I just left off the watch and I became an immoral man and I don't repent and I go for it, maybe then I'll find authenticity in the uniqueness of my existential angst. You don't say that. You say, no, I'm, this is who I am under the Lordship of Christ. I'm a one-woman man. That's it. Another example, maybe so. You say you, you have a small group in your house, small group Bible study. You've got the silver out, and there's a guy sitting next to the silver. He leaves, and you count the silver. There are eight pieces missing. And you go, well, this is kind of strange. Eight pieces of silver missing. So you call him up and say, you know, we're missing silver. Do you have any idea? Well, I need to tell you about that. You see, I'm a thief. And I've been going to your Bible study at your house for months, and that silver's been sitting down there, and I've refused to steal, and it's really given me inner pain. So to really authenticate who I am, I just need to steal. And I've also slipped into your office and got your, into your computer and know your passcode, your bank account. I just emptied out your bank account because that's who I am. I'm a thief. And when I steal, I just feel better about who I am. You say, well, that's it. No, no. It's, it's the same. It's the antinomian captivity of the church. It's saying, I've got to do what's good for me as I perceive it. Listen, I walk, under the, I walk under this word by the power of the Holy Spirit to honor Jesus. That's it. And so we need to say with God to breeze in 1567 that, that they may come to us, but we will offer our backs to stripes and our tongues to knives and our mouths to gags and our bodies to fire, but we will not deny the reality of Jesus and his word in our lives. And that's just who we are. And that's how we live. And so if somebody is involved in ongoing unrepentant sin, we stand in the road and we embrace them. We say, listen, my dear friend, you're saved by faith. And the evidence of faith is a life that wants to be honoring unto the Lord. And we know what's honoring unto the Lord as we open the scripture and walk in obedience. So, very quickly, how do we avoid this error? I'll do this quickly. Three things from the text. Number one, realize, realize, understand this. There is an ongoing twisting of the Word of God process that's endemic to every culture at every time. It goes on and on and on, and it just goes from decade to decade. If you remember 15 years ago, there was a movement by a guy that was a very good communicator where he denied the reality of hell. He's gone He's, he's, unfortunately, he's denied faith. He's gone way off, the, way, way off the page. And we dealt with that, and we talked about that, and we prayed through that, and we labored through that. And there's always going to be a twisting of the Scripture for people to satisfy the cravings of what they want the Bible to say instead of what God is in his essence. So understand the twisting process. Therefore, I need to be involved in the body of Christ. I need to, to be in communion with people who love and listen to the word and apply it to their lives. But there's a twisting process. Anything that's going to happen in the next week or months or years has already happened in the church. There's nothing new under the sun. If you study church history, every heresy, every schism has already been worked out. So it's just there. The second thing is the real... Paul says this was either, excuse me, Peter says it's either taught by or given to, it can go either way in the translation, to ignorant and unstable people. 
Either the false teachers were ignorant and unstable, or their recipients, as you read the text, were ignorant and unstable. For a way of understanding the, the text, it makes no difference how you interpret it. But as I look at it, here's my application. I am ignorant and unstable, apart from God's spirit and the word of my life. I have no place to stand I mean, many issues apart from Scripture. Therefore, I say to myself that I am one dumb decision away from walking in error that leads to destruction. I'm one dumb decision away from giving uh, adherence to a passion or an inclination or something in my spirit that will lead me to destruction. I need to be tethered to the Word of God. The third thing is, the way I overcome this is to understand that God is the overflowing fountain of good. Now, there is a rest within the rest. Let me explain that. Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Period. New paragraph. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Now, you can interpret that passage to say there is rest in Christ, and there is a deeper rest as we constantly take on the yoke of Jesus and walk in obedience to his declared will. So there's a rest within the rest. I need to progressively grow as a disciple of Jesus. The last verse of this book that I'll deal with in the coming weeks, Peter says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Next week, I'm talking about your, our stable position. He says, you don't fall from your stable position by growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, beware of the antinomian captivity of large parts of the evangelical church. Do not, do not twist the scriptures to say something that is palatable or ironic to a cultural mandate. Be people of the book. And speak with brokenness and love and humility and tears, but speak. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the privilege of worship. Thank you that we can open the Bible and read it and understand it. Uh, God, give us uh, homes that ring with laughter and joy. We think of Father's Day today. We pray that the men of our church will be servant leaders who are pace setters and providers and protectors. That uh, you give us men who are lion-hearted and men who have the ability to weep and love and care and laugh. And Lord, just may, may we see a great coming generations of young people raised who understand the vibrant nature of following Christ. Oh God, bless us, preserve us, protect us. In Jesus' name, amen.